Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans for ConnectingVets.com, the military news and veteran lifestyle website. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. And today's guest, well, I just can't say enough about because it's one of my favorite subjects. It is, of course, hard rock. Long before I helmed this show and I did journalism in a respectable fashion or somewhat respectable, uh, I loved rock radio. Uh, I did mornings on rock radio stations around the country. I've interviewed all kinds of bands from like Aerosmith to ZZ Top. And, and uh, when it comes to talking music, it's one of my favorite subjects. Uh, learning about the musician, what makes them work, how they got into it. And then really, like when you talk about the performance, that's only part of it. I mean, it's what made the songs that makes it so fascinating. And today we get to combine it with military veterans service and memories of some of the most, well, probably the most elite military unit in the country. Because our guest today is Brad Thomas, a former special operations commando and co-founder or founder rather of the band Silence and Light. Formed in May of 2017 in New York City, Silence and Light draws from their musical pasts and experiences as U.S. Special Operations veterans. Now, let's just stop right there. You'll never find another hard rock band that's made up of guys like this. And uh, what's really cool is they set out to create music that would raise awareness about the issues that veterans of the global war on terror and civil first responders face every day. And in keeping with their mission as Special Operations veterans, um, the proceeds from the music sales of the first album, Silence and Light, Volume 1, will be contributed to Warrior's Heart and the Marine Raider Foundation. So let's jump into it now. Let's get to know Brad Thomas. How are you, buddy? What's going on, man? How are you, Phil? I want to know who wrote that for our website because I've never, <laughs> I've never read that before, but I loved it. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a copywriter in your midst. You didn't know it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. You come from this elite world of the military. Um, a lot of people don't know its full name, but Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. is Delta Force. Tell me a little bit about what got you into the military and the pipeline it took you to get to Delta, because you don't start off in that unit. So there was, uh, in December of 1989, there was kind of a trifecta of things that happened. And I uh, graduated high school in 87, so was playing music in and around the D.C. area, you know, would form a band, kind of get everything running and get to the point of getting out and playing and something would happen, you know, this, there would be drama with this guy or this guy's moving from the area. And then, you know, you're starting the whole process again. And just after doing that for, I guess, maybe six years, 
December of 89, there were three things that happened. First was the band that I was in just kind of fell apart. Um, so that was kind of the first thing. The second thing was the invasion of Panama happened and the Rangers jumped into uh, the country of Panama, assaulted several airfields in the pursuit of General Manuel Noriega and kind of the, the drug war that we had going on at the time. And then I had uh, the third thing was I had a buddy that had joined the Air Force and was home on probably like Christmas Exodus. He was an EOD guy, but he was telling me about at the end of his basic training, there were these guys that came from a special unit recruiting to get guys in to jump in behind enemy lines to rescue down pilots. And so those three things kind of all happened at the same time. And I was 21 or about to turn 21 and kind of at a dead end, you know, where do I go? Do I keep at this music thing with a bunch of people that just seem to be wishy-washy and, or do I make a hard, you know, hard right turn and see where it goes. And so that's, that's kind of where it started. Where do I want to go with this, man? So many questions. I too grew up in the DC area. I started, uh, we're about the same age. I started sneaking into bars when I was in high school on my fake ID. Uh, some of my favorites were hammer jacks. Oh yeah. Baltimore, uh, rock and roll legend. Um, what was the place down on K street in DC bands would play? Uh, the Bayou, the Bayou. Yeah. Did you guys so, yeah. ever play there or did you no, guys ever? No, no, no. We had the Bayou. You had the 930 Club. Oh, the 930 Hank. over. Yeah. Yeah. You had Hammerjacks. You had, I'm trying to think, down in uh, College Park, you had the Voo. You the had, Voo. Yeah. <laughs> so so oh, all, man, that, all that stuff. That was kind of the scene. DC had a great music scene. It's interesting when you look at it, and I, I hear pop music today, and I'm not putting down pop music. There is no element of danger like there was in the music scene in the 1980s. I, I literally saw Anthrax at Hammerjacks with Metal Church and one other band. And it was so violent. I thought, you know, literally we're going to die in this place. It was that just over the top. People stage diving, getting crushed against the stage, you know, mosh pit from hell. It was an absolutely insane uh, had similar stuff happen at the 930 club where like, dude, getting carted out with a broken arm, you know, people knocked unconscious because some, some dude dives off the stage and kicks him in the head with his Doc Martens or whatever it might be. And, and it's not like that anymore, but that's also not society. Young kids aren't like that. There's no danger anymore. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's disappointing, but it's evolution. So, Yeah. Or maybe they're just like, they don't know how to channel their teen angst properly. And I'm glad to know you came up in an era when we knew how to do that shit. And we did it pretty damn well. Okay, so Invasion of Panama, late 80s. I remember it. Late 80s was still this era when like, I wasn't really drawn to joining the military. I didn't even join till the 90s. Um was a little bit I'm a little bit younger than you but uh late 80s was still you know glory time you know everybody was getting you know paid and yuppies were a thing and people were buying new cars and cool clothes and f- pop your collar and it was just like the world was having a good time the the, yep. the the wall was falling it didn't seem like war was anything we were still before desert 1 so kuwait hadn't jumped off yet iraq still wasn't like making that much noise and then here you are watching the invasion of Panama, just going, wow. Okay. Am I going to have this mullet and a cheap ass apartment for the rest of my life and maybe make it, maybe not? Or am I going <laughs> to join the military? And here you are joining the military. How did it go, man? What'd you like? How did you end up Ranger or how did you end up SF? Actually, it's kind of funny. So I went because my buddy was in the Air Force. And he was really the only person that I knew that was in the military or had joined the military. And even he was just brand new. So it wasn't like, you know, he had been in for five years and was telling me all this great stuff. It was kind of like just a brand new. He had just completed AIT. So I went to the Air Force recruiter and the Air Force recruiter said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to join this special group that jumps in behind down, you know, behind enemy lines and rescues down pilots. And he's like, well, you know, there's no guarantee of that. 
And I said, I totally get it. I just want to be guaranteed the right to try. And so we went back and forth for probably a month or more. And he, you know, was a total liar. Uh, basically said, if you sign the document, I'll get you a contract. It'll just come at a later date and we can figure it out. And so anyway, after a couple of months of screwing around with this guy, I was leaving one day and the army recruiter who had seen me there every week pulled me aside and he said, Hey man, what, what are you doing? What's going on? And I said, well, the guy's jerking me around and he says he can give me a contract, but he, he's not. And he said, okay, well, what do you want to do? And I said, how about like Delta force? And I don't know why that came out of my mouth, but that's what came out of my mouth. And he's, he laughed and he was like, well, you can't do that. You have to do something before that, like special forces. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And he said, well, you can't do that either. You got to be something before that, like a ranger. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And he said, I can give you a contract for that today. And, and that's really kind of where it started. And there you were with your shot, your one shot, just yeah, got yeah. one shot, quote Eminem song, or, you know, cue the Eminem right here. Um, what was that like then? You were in, you were in basic, but you knew that you were going to have at least an opportunity to try out for selection. And did you have any of the well, physical attributes going into this? Because I'm seeing a long haired dude, guitar player, flannel, been hanging out, you know, at Hammerjacks way too long, way too late at night. Uh, all your friends smoking smoke cigarettes, weed. smoking <laughs> weed. And here I see this dude, you know, every cliche of late 80s, early 90s <laughs> metal band. Were you doing like sit-ups while like at band practice or were you doing pull-ups while your buddies were passing around the bong or like, I mean, nope. how were you physically capable enough to even try out for Rangers after basic? Yeah, I was, uh, I was smoking a lot of cigarettes, drinking a lot of beer. Um, you know, I, I think I cut my hair before I showed up just so that I didn't want the army to take that from me. I wanted to take it for myself right. and, uh, <laughs> and they would, Oh, they'd have yeah, fun yeah. cutting that long hair. Yeah. I, there were, I think over that summer, you know, a few different times I was like, let me go run and see, you know, how I can do, or, you know, something, let me see how many pushups I can do. And again, it's like, there are certain things you realize. One of them is the army is all about the crawl, walk, run method. Meaning like you can't just go running. You're going to crawl first before you walk. You know? And so everything is kind of like prepares you for the next thing. And each, each thing is a new challenge, but you, know, you don't go into something blind. And that's, that's very much the way the military is. They don't just send you off to a school with no knowledge or making sure that you can pass the PT test or, you know, making sure that you're not qualified to go there. So um, everything kind of led to the next. So I went through basic training in AIT for infantry, and then that sent me to airborne school and right. airborne school was kind of a step above in terms of physical fitness and everything else than basic training in AIT was. And then, that sent me to the Ranger indoctrination program, which was at that time, like a three week, really just kind of physical smoke fest. And uh, there were there were mandatory events that you had to pass, uh, most of it being physical and based on your physical fitness or prowess. And mm -hmm. and then now you're a brand new guy at the Ranger Regiment. So you get assigned to one of the Ranger battalions. And really, that's where it all begins, because so many of these kids that like hit me up on social media, they're like, Oh, you must have felt a sense of accomplishment when you finally made it or, and you realize much like the NFL analogy, you know, there are thousands of dudes that join the NFL every year. There are only so many stars, you know, there are only so many guys like Deion Sanders that spends or Aaron Rodgers or, you know, oh, yeah. Brady or whomever. Right. So you, you realize very quickly that, okay, just because you made it into an organization doesn't mean that you can stay there. So you have to perform every day just to stay there. And I, I think about this, you know, the arc of your story so far, and it's like only at 20, 21 years old, are you physically capable of going from being like, 
not athletic at all to <laughs> being able to finish basic training and then train up for, you know, the entrance exam or whatever it is, selection for the Ranger Battalion. I mean, like yeah. if, if if I wanted to train to run a quicker mile, it would literally take me two years to get my you know my time down by three minutes you had to do it in the span of you know that's amazing you could do that in the course of a year and and it's a lot of it's just genetics too like i ran track uh you know played football played lacrosse things like that and fortunately i'm just i'm a runner you know a slim dude by genetics and you know there are a lot of people that have to fight that just to stay fit enough um i was very fortunate the other thing that i was super fortunate with was not being injured in any significant way that, that hindered that journey, you know, and that's really kind of a lot, a lot of what I saw um, along the way really was people quitting. And I never really understood that. Like if, if I'm going to, if I have a goal that I want to become a Ranger or a Delta force guy, I'm not going to just take myself out of that by quitting. And if I get hurt, or something happens, or they don't select me, so be it. But I'm not going to take myself out of that equation. And really, the large percentage of the attrition rates of all these selection processes are guys that quit, and they take themselves out. And I, I never really understood that. Um, mm. The other part of the guys that get hurt, and you know, they have something significant, they tear something in their ankle, and okay, that's it, they're, they're done. Uh, and then there's a lot of luck. You know, all right. So we're there. We are lucky enough to become an elite army ranger, lead the way, and uh, you served there for a few years. Uh, we're talking early nineties now. That was the last super. I don't. I don't. I. I don't want to say this and sound like the old guy that's like, oh, it's so much better than when back in you. <laughs> there was just something different happening then. America was like in this evolution, you know, grunge uh, wasn't even called grunge. It was just, you know, all of a sudden the hair metal scene that was just so hugely popular and dominating everything we saw on MTV and VH1 and all of that stuff just came to a screeching halt. Next thing you know, here's Nirvana with Smells Like Teen Spirit and everything just went sideways from there. In a good way. This was before, you know, cell phones and email and the ability to communicate, stay connected and things like that. And, you know, not everybody had a camera in their hand and a video camera in their hand. So, you know, when I think back of it, it was just a very special and unique time. Both musically, socially, culturally, as you mentioned, um, an amazing, amazing decade. Because uh, so many things were coming online, whether it was technology, but the soundtrack was just amazing. And you're right. That smells like teen spirit. I mean, I remember being at Arizona State and I turned that on and I was like, whoa, this doesn't sound like CNC Music Factory. This ain't Janet <laughs> yeah. Jackson. This is raw emotion. And this dude has something to say. Never mind. Mind blowing album. In 91, uh, I was watching a documentary about this. And if you Google album releases 1991, it's one of the most epic years in music history. Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion, One and Two, uh, Metallica Black Album, Nirvana, Nevermind, Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam 10, Smashing Pumpkins, Gish. Like it just goes on and on and on. And it was just such a special time musically, sonically, you know, the yeah. soundtrack of our lives at that time. So, yeah. Now we're going to get into in a little bit about your connection with that soundtrack, because one of your bandmates, uh, very, very interesting story there. Uh, dare I say the most interesting green beret that's ever lived. And that's probably, <laughs> that's why I mean, a joke, but I mean, you get it. Like that's, that's definitely a fascinating story with your bandmate, Jason Everman, but I want to get kind of more into the military track and hear while we're listening to all this music in our headphones, while all this music's popping off in the nineties, we did skip over one impressive part of your background. And this is, you know, I just wanted to see what I could learn from you here. We talked a little bit about Black Hawk Down Operation Gothic Serpent, I believe, launched in August of 93. Yeah. Um, 
Tell me a little bit about what you remember about being Ranger Battalion about that time. And then when you knew you were going to get a call to do this pretty intense mission. Yeah, it was uh, kind of a series of back and forths where we were in Texas doing uh, what was called a joint readiness exercise where all of the different units who were assigned to special operations kind of worked together. And at some point during the training, you know, event, which was a couple of weeks long, our leadership got us together and said, you know, look, there's, uh, this is a situation. There's this little country called Somalia and we through the UN are sending aid there and the aid is being picked off by these warlords. And in the process, you know, there are American UN peacekeepers that are getting killed and other nations that are a part of the UN that are getting killed. And so, you know, we may go do something. And it was very, you know, kind of low key. And a couple of days would go by and then it was kind of like, hey, we, we think we're going to go to Fort Bragg and do this training exercise to kind of prepare for that. And even that was pretty loose. And, and I don't remember all the details of this, but um, at some point, you know, back and forth of a few days, we ended up in Fort Bragg. And I think we were there for about 10 days doing a train up of here's how we think we're going to do this operation. Obviously, we can't simulate uh, downtown Mogadishu, but you know, we can, we can kind of prepare and go to different urban training sites and things like that. And, and so we did that. And then basically at the end of it was, Hey, the president's not ready to sign off on this thing yet. So go back to Texas, finish the training exercise. Uh, We flew back to Texas. We landed and a guy came running out to the airplane and said, don't get off the airplane. You guys are going right back. And then you're going to go to Mogadishu another American was just killed and the president is authorizing, you know, the use of force, whatever. And then we flew over to Mogadishu. Was that your first time in actual combat? Like, yeah, I mean, that was, that was aside from the handful of our leadership that had been either in Grenada in 83 or in Panama in 89, that was, that was it. You know, nobody, you know, I, I try and tell people, most people that signed up back then were, like they joined for the college money. They, you know, they were doing a four-year enlistment. It wasn't like they were going to spend a career in the military. They literally went to get their GI bill fulfilled and, and then get their college paid for. And then maybe they would be a game warden or a police officer or whatever it might be. So that was kind of like most of the people that I served with at that time, it was just a four-year enlistment type of thing. So yeah, that was the first time for probably the large majority of the Ranger company that went. Can you imagine seeing a guy that's on, you know, a Ranger battalion not having a combat action ribbon? I mean, after the last 20 years, I mean, I know dozens of people that have them. When I was in the Navy, I don't think I met one person that actually had yeah. one, you know, in their stack because it was, you know, it was mid to late 90. Even when we got back from that. So we, you know, were there just about three months. Uh Black Hawk Down or the events depicted in the movie Black Hawk Down were, you know, an 18 hour period from October 3rd to October 4th of, of 93. Uh, but we had done seven, uh, successful operations prior to that. And either that or, or that was the seventh. I can't remember which, but we had done a bunch of different things. And even when we got back from that, it was kind of like, okay, now let's go back to, real soldiering and make sure our boots are blackened and, and, you know, ha- haircuts are tight and everything else. And it was a real, it was a, a tough pill to swallow for a lot of guys, you know, because yeah. even the military didn't learn from that engagement. It learned, it learned some hard lessons. Like we need the ability to with, you know, extricate ourselves from a situation. So we need some sort of hardened armored vehicles that we can call upon to get us out if need be. Or every guy needs to have communication so that he can relay or, you know, that type of thing. There, there were a lot of lessons learned, but, you know, we still didn't strategically as a military or as a country, we weren't, you know, prepared for 
right? Crazy what we learned in 20 years of this. Um, Wrapping up real quick, that part of Mogadishu. Of course, we remember Black Hawk down the film. Operation Gothic Servant was the mission. Um, Can I just ask you, is there any sort of memory you can share from that? I mean, I went out on the initial assault and uh, was a part of the vehicle convoy that was expelling casualties back to the hangar. And so I was kind of going back and forth between the hangar and uh, the different crash sites. And so we were uh, not really depicted well in the movie, um, but by far sustained the most casualties and were doing the most damage uh, driving in and around the city. And it was just kind of one big rolling ambush for, you know, the better part of the afternoon into the evening and then stayed at one of the crash sites you know, the remainder of the night and then fought our way out of the city the next day until we got uh, to the, I think it was a Pakistani stadium or soccer stadium where uh, all the Pakistani and Malaysian armor and everything was sitting. So it was, you know, I was, I was there every bit of the battle and, um, you know, it was pretty, having been in a lot of other gunfights after that, you know, that's always my high watermark just in terms of uh, violence of the battle itself and, you know, the number of casualties sustained and just how quickly things can go wrong. And if you don't have all these, you know, contingency plans in place, it just continues to escalate and get worse. I think to experience that it early on, you know, so I was in the Rangers for about two years and was in the process of becoming a leader in the Rangers and to have that be a part of who I was as a soldier so early was probably a really good thing just because it enabled me to be able to look at, you know, when handed a mission later in my career, I could kind of take all those things into account and make sure we don't just pay something lip service, you know, but actually give it real, the attention that it needs. And to think during that era, right? So then I'm listening to Nirvana's follow-up. I'm listening to Heart Shaped Box. And I'm guy still got long hair back in the States. And I'm rocking to the 90s. And you were one of the few guys in the service at the time that had really had that kind of urban combat underneath your belt with recent fresh eyes. And it would be a decade or so more before we, or it would be almost a decade before, yeah. you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of just regular enlisted as well as the special operations community would get a taste of that after 9-11. Talk to me about kind of the trajectory then from like coming back from Somalia into your uh, initiation into Delta Force. Yeah, so I... At the time that we were doing the training event in Texas, I had told my leadership that I wanted to try out for a special unit in the Rangers. And so I was way too junior to go to Delta Force. And I had the fortune of being like one of the only guys from the Ranger Regiment to get sent over to Bosnia. And I was working with guys from Delta over there. And one of the people that I ran across while I was there was, would become uh, the next Delta Force commander. And he basically said, you know, hey, you, you need to come. You know, we want you to go to selection. So as soon as you can get yourself ready physically, you need to be there. That was in April of 98. And I went to selection that fall in September of 98. Awesome. Uh, Lastly, about Delta, and then we'll jump into the music chapter here real quick. But it fascinates me every time I hear about this, this unit in the military, because I mean, I know special operations units get a lot of glory. I've seen them. I knew that, you know, I knew where the SEAL teams were when I was in Norfolk, Um, had a few of them on our ships, you know, at times. And then you hear about this operational detachment Delta that is basically on call for whenever the joint chiefs and the president see something urgent enough that we need to send in this team. When you're a part of that team, is it still like you're going to work at a base every day? Or do you guys literally all just have to be at like one hangar and there's like nothing but 
helicopters at a table with a red phone and nobody can be gone from the building for more than six hours because you might be needed? Um, or do you guys live like regular lives working the nine to five at the base, but then knowing that at any moment you could be called? Yeah, it's it's a it's a very regular type of I go here every day and I do these things, you know, in preparation for whatever I might be doing next. So there's a cycle of training, you know, that kind of is on repeat. And then there are special things that pop up. And when special stuff pops up, I think one of the reasons that it's done a good job of being secretive is because it's able to kind of keep secrets. As an example, Mogadishu, uh, there was a squadron prior to the squadron that did the train up for Mogadishu that had done it months and months before. At the Rangers, we hadn't heard anything about it because the Ranger has, the Ranger battalions have privates. You know, you, you have a secret security clearance, but Privates by nature are dumb and they get on the payphone and they tell their girlfriend that they're going to war and spill secrets and things like that. So guess um, what? You'll never believe it. Here's what's going. Yeah, yeah. 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 So at the highest levels at the Rangers, they probably knew there were, you know, some things that were happening, but that wasn't necessarily disseminated to the guys. And I think the big difference is at Delta, you know, you kind of know what's going on. You're doing training, you're, they're building fake facilities or whatever it might be in support right. of training operations and things like that. So you might prepare for something and it just never happens. So I've done a lot of that where, hey, we're going to go do this thing in country X and, you know, the president's giving it the green light, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it just never happens for whatever reasons, you know. You know about things early enough that you can prepare and that that might be a week or two working late, you know, and you're hmm. kind of doing your own thing and the wife and family knows not to ask you what's going on. And, uh, you know, you just kind of got some stuff going on at work. So. Right. I guess what I want to clear up is you do not live inside an empty volcano and you are. No. Uh, yeah, it's right. not the bat cave. Because, I mean, you just think about what it would take to know that the president at two in the morning can get the phone call that something's gone sideways and know that these guys can be ready in like a moment's notice. Did you have to live close enough to the base, though, where you could get there? If if you think about things in terms of a cycle, right, you have certain elements of the cycle or maybe they're prepared and ready to go do something and maybe other elements of the cycle are doing different things. So there's this kind of evolution of cycle and, mm. you know, you may be at one level of readiness during one part of the cycle and at another level of readiness, you know, so you can go take vacation and you can go do the military schooling and things like that that you need to do. So it, that's, that's one of the things that, that kind of became mundane to me about, about working there was just the cycle it was just kind of on repeat, you know? Now we're doing this. Now we're doing this again. Now we're doing this. Okay, now we deploy. Now we're doing this. Now we're doing, you know, and it just became kind of mundane. And that takes us to sort of the new life now that you've led and the music world, which is anything but mundane. Uh, but at the same time, when people get out of the military, uh, can find the fact that they don't have as big of a purpose anymore. It's a huge moment in life because it's kind of like, now what do I want to be when I grow up? And I heard you in another interview talking about this and music, although it's always been in your blood, you've always played. It wasn't your first thing. And in fact, I heard that they took your wife asking about that room full of guitars or something for you to really embrace it. But share with me kind of one, how you relate to the GWAT era vets now that are going through this period in their life when it's like, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? Up-tempo life is over. I'm not kicking indoors anymore. I'm not fast roping out of little birds under the rooftop of buildings, you know, getting shot at. What do I do with my life? Well, thanks for just handing me the, uh, the reins to that and saying, <laughs> yeah, solve that <laughs> here, problem. Right. So, uh, yeah, here's all these problems. Uh, uh, let's see, because there are a couple of things in there. Um, one is 
you know, I've never been a person that is defined by the thing that I did yesterday, you know, and I feel like I could have gotten out after Mogadishu, you know, and been like, man, I had a hell of a career, you know, four years in the army and became a ranger sergeant and, you know, was over in Mogadishu and did this thing. And it wasn't a time of war. And I, I feel like if I had done that, this is just me. I'm not slighting anybody else that, that chose to do things differently. Um, it, it would have been that thing that kind of defined me for a long time. And so to have something to look forward to, like, I'm going to try this new unit in the Rangers. And then I did that. And then to have this thing, uh, still in front of me, like now I'm going to try for Delta. And so it's just this continuation of refusing to look in the rear view mirror and say that the best days are behind me. You know, I I've never wanted to be that. So in terms of music and the band and everything else, I mean, I was towards the latter part of my time in the service. So maybe 2007, 2008, I started back with mu- you know, music pretty heavily and was, you know, playing in bands in Fayetteville. We were opening for, all the national acts that came through Fayetteville, Cracker, Evans, Blue, Vanilla Ice, you, you name it. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that. And it was mostly original music, not that I had written. And I, I had a great time doing it, but that kind of really reignited everything. And so then comes like this collection of equipment and gear and everything else. And I've always, you know, had stuff. My wife and I, you know, started having these talks on, uh, you know, Friday night, date night, we're out having a couple of cocktails and then we have a nice dinner and then we go home and chill and it's all pretty tame. Every week, you know, it was kind of like, I, I'm like a ship out on the ocean, just looking for the lighthouse. Like, just tell me what to do. You know, how can I help? What can I, I didn't want to start a foundation, you know, and, and be worried about asking people for money. I obviously want to help give back to the community and contribute to the community in some way, shape or form. So how can I kind of do all these things? And every week it would be something different, you know? Um, one week it would be like, well, you need to run for office and be involved in politics and, and do this. And, you know, uh, the next week it would be, you know, something totally different, start this program or start this transition program for better, you know, whatever. We're going to go zip line in the woods. I got a buddy with five <laughs> acres and yeah, 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 yeah. it's going to be super rad. Um, so anyway, one day she comes into this room and she says, you know, it's just a shame that you're not doing anything with all this stuff. I mean, you play and all of that, but the next day I was driving into uh, Manhattan to meet my buddy, Jason, who's now a bandmate. Um, and we were going to see Mastodon. And I think, I forget what the circumstances were, but I think Jason roomated with Bill Kelleher from Mastodon at one point or something along those lines. So we had some backstage hookup and things like that. But as I was driving in to meet him, it kind of clicked and the light bulb went off and it was like, man, you should do something music related. And, you know, if you want to make it a charitable thing, you can contribute music royalties you know, to charitable organizations that you believe in that are helping veterans and first responders and soft and, you know, whatever. And so didn't really know or really have, you know, the, the idea wasn't matured by the time that I, I talked with Jason a little bit later that day, but we were having some cocktails before the show and, you know, basically said, look, man, I know you've been out of music for a long time. I don't know if you want to dabble in that again. Uh, so I respect your decision if you say no, but you know, here's kind of what I want to do. Would you be willing to be a part of it? Do you want to be a part of it? And that's really where it started. Going to a show with your buddy. You guys are both <laughs> musicians and it dawned on you that God's gift that you've been sitting on your entire life. That's really just a cathartic hobby at this point can become the next chapter of your life. Awesome, man. Silence and light almost born at that exact moment took a little while to come together, but uh, it starts with an interesting genetic makeup. And that is your buddy, Jason, Jason Everman's not a name that jumps off the page to everyone listening. 
but his musical background certainly is. And uh, bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden. And then he was a Green Beret. Give me just a couple bullet points that somebody would just be blown away to know about your bandmate. Hmm. Let's see. He's a very uh, introspective and thoughtful, pensive would be a good word, I think, to describe him. And, you know, I've, I didn't even know. Um, so he, he spent some time in the Rangers before going to Special Forces. And that's how I heard about him was almost by word of mouth immediately when he showed up in the Rangers in 1994. It was, hey, there's this guy that was in Nirvana and Soundgarden. It's in 2nd Ranger Battalion up in Fort Lewis, Washington. And it was like, there's no internet then. So there wasn't, you know, (laughs) there wasn't a way to figure it out. And so it wasn't until years later and we met and, you know, kind of started doing the, do you know this guy, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, anyway, just an incredible human being. Um, What was his connection then to those bands? Like, obviously when they were just bar bands, then like he was friends with them and was jamming with them before the final lineup came together and then the whole well, world knew their name i think with nirvana uh nirvana was never intended to be a three-piece and that's why you've seen you know like pat smear and other people that have joined along the way but he was really the first you know guitar player and you know the intent was he was a part of the band um he paid for their first album bleach uh to be recorded you know dropped six hundred and six dollars or whatever on Jack Encino, I think was the producer of the album, but he had, uh, they were working with Sub Pop, you know, which was a music label in uh, Seattle at the time. So he was definitely at the leading edge of grunge. And I think Jason was always like punk rock metal guy. And so there was a certain edge and heaviness that he brought to the music, you know, when they first started. So they were, they were playing all over the place and he went, you know, on their first uh, really world tour with them. And, you know, at some point, I think they played in New York city and everybody had come to the conclusion that he was no longer a good fit for the band. And interestingly, because he and I recently had this conversation. And so there's this uh, book about Nirvana called come as you are. And it's, if you're a Nirvana fan, it's, it's almost an absolute must, but it really gets into a lot of the details of the band and how it formed and, how certain songs came to be and all that stuff. So anyway, it gets to this part about Jason and it became apparent to me because I've known him for going on 12 or more years. It became very apparent to me that they didn't know him at all. You know, it was like an acquaintance that just so happened to be in the band. But if you know, Jason, he's mostly quiet. You know, when we rehearse, He'll he'll sit for the entire day and not really say much. And then he'll drop a bombshell, you know, that comes out of nowhere. And you're just like, holy shit, man. And some of them not repeatable. Right, uh, right, right. You know, some of them very repeatable. And you, but that's just kind of the person he is. And it, it takes, uh, because he's kind of like this thoughtful person, he's really got to be comfortable with the people that he's around before you really see the real Jason. And it became so apparent to me that they just didn't know him. They were mistaking his pensiveness as unhappy and not fun and all of that. And really he was just probably in his shell, just, you know, doing his normal Jason stuff. But I asked him about that and, uh, you know, his, his response was, was kind of interesting, but he's not really been a person that does a lot of talking about it. And I'm also, you know, trying and be thoughtful about that. Like, Hey, Jason, tell me again about that time you were in Nirvana and what was Kurt Cobain like? And, you know, I, I don't ever want to be that because he's my friend. Yeah. Um, just like people that know me ask me about the band. They don't ask me about, Hey, in Mogadishu, uh, how many bullets do you think you shot that day? Like, you know what I mean? It's it's the same kind of thing. So he was in Nirvana as the, as the you know, really the, the guitar player. And so that Kurt didn't have to be so fixated on playing guitar parts correctly when he was singing. That's, that's how it came to be. And at some point, 
after they played in New York, they decided that's it. And Jason's out of the band and they went back to Seattle and maybe within 30 days, uh, Kim from Soundgarden hit him up and said, you know, Hey, we need a bass player. You want to, you want to come do this thing. And so he jumped in with them and did their world tour right after their kind of first album came out. So they would have been pre bad motor finger. Uh, okay. so I think it was 90 into maybe early 91. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I was just getting my start in radio about that time out of college. And I remember temple of the dog being this kind of group that was assembled by all these different Seattle area players. And you really saw the connection between these bands because at their core before, nevermind before Pearl jam and 10 before they were on the radio, they were just bar bands that all knew each other. And, yeah. you know, they would flop on the same couches. They probably had the same pot dealer. I mean, like they all knew each other. Most people don't know this, but that Temple of the Dog album actually came out before any of those albums. Oh, really? Yeah, it didn't hit and become popular until like 93. And that was only because... You know, Nirvana hit big. Finally, who is it? Pearl Jam and Soundgarden got big. Yeah. And it wasn't until that happened that they were like, oh, they did this. They did this like tribute album for their buddy, Andy Wood from Mother Love Bone. So Mother Love Bone was the first real band from Seattle that got signed. And on the day before the release of their first album, Andy Wood, the, the lead singer died of a heroin overdose. And so... They brought in um, Eddie Vedder, uh, was somebody that somebody knew, and he came up to sing on the album with Chris Cornell, and they put this whole thing together. But none of those bands were known at the time. Yeah. To think that like there was somebody out there that at the time all three of those stars are peaking with Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. The, there's someone at a record label going, did you guys know they were all on the same record yeah. back in 91? <laughs> this thing yeah. has to be released. I mean... Yeah, and yes. then there was a music, the music video was done. I think that's probably when it became a thought. Like, I don't know when they shot the music video, whether it was before or after, but amazing stories. Uh, and it's always the quiet guy that has them. But uh, yeah. I, uh, another another interview for another time uh, when we get to meet up and I see you guys at a Silent and Lights show, um, Silence and Light show. Uh, I want to chat with him and find out how in the hell he made the right turn into special forces after all of that background because like you here's a kid that was a long-haired guitar player uh you know hanging out with the with the grunge crowd and the music crowd and the alternative rockers and the club cigarettes man and the angst and then you guys become badass warfighters so uh, i think it's uh, it's not crazy. not that we need to get super sidebarred on this but i think one of the things that I was seeking and I would guarantee that Jason would, would say the same thing was almost like this camaraderie. And, you know, that was one of the things that like I talk about with the band stuff that I was doing, although it wasn't Nirvana and Soundgarden, but the band stuff that I was doing in the eighties into, you know, very early in 90. And, you know, there was this sense of like us against the world and we're going to get out there and do this. So for me, I, I know that one of the things that I was really seeking was this sense of team and camaraderie, even though I played sports and I fit in with most, most of the different cliques in school and things like that. I wasn't like an outcast or anything, but uh, I don't know. And I feel like I didn't get it from music and then I ended up getting it, you know, in the military. And then I've kind of rebuilt it with the, with the band. It really is like my little team of guys and, you know, there is a camaraderie there and there's a commonality. It's not like we sit around talking about war when we're together. We're talking about shared experiences. The way we write music is different because we're just very focused on getting a job done and not a whole lot about, you know, the personal dynamics of things. And, you know, maybe this guy wants to play something differently or whatever. And it just there, none of that drama is there. Very cool. And it makes a lot of sense that you want that team. And now to write a new chapter with your band Silence and Light that feeds off of those shared experiences and now creates this epic, dramatic, 
hard rock. It is a kaleidoscope of sound and drop D chord and big, heavy bass notes with some great melody woven over the top. And it's got hard rock in the style of, and I'll say it again, because it came up on my thing, but in the style of tool, you know, some of those really great um, melodic hard rock bands. Let's talk a little bit about the music. And I told you earlier, I was listening to again, the album silence and light volume one. Let's unpack a couple songs and I'll weave them into this interview here as we're talking. But um, I told you earlier today, I was listening to the song war and you'd said that I should listen to, let me find your text here. Prelude war then silence and light. Yeah. Yeah. And prelude is a beautiful dark kind of melodic introduction piece. And then war hits you with the staccato and the rhythm track, and it just gets really heavy and aggressive. And then silence and light kind of backs down at the beginning again. What am I listening to when I hear war and silence and light? What are the lyrics about? Share with me how it's drawn from your guys' shared experience. Well, it uh prelude was a song that was a, a full song. First, I kind of had to backtrack. One of the cool things that happened uh, after I approached Jason about, hey, do you want to do this thing, was I, I started a social media page. And so it was just Jason and I. There wasn't anything. And Jason's not on social media. So it's kind of me taking some of his pictures and sharing them and stuff that he says, you know, hey, share this or whatever. Um, one of the first people that reached out was uh, Tyson, the bass player. And he had just gotten out of Marsoc and was kind of hitting that point that we were talking about of like, man, I did all this stuff. It was exciting. Where do I go now? I need something, man. And he hit me up and just said, I don't know what you got going on, but I want to be a part of it. And I said, do you play an instrument? He says bass. And I was like, okay, I'll come down to Raleigh in the next you know, week or so. Let's hang and just see if we click and it'll kind of go from there. And And that's it started to grow organically. The next person that hit me up was former Marine also, uh, Josh Goodwin, our producer. And I, you know, the guy hits me up and he says, Hey, uh, I don't ever offer this, but I'd like to help, you know, produce your first album. And I Google the guy and I'm like, Holy shit. Like this is a list. I mean, as a list as a list gets. And um, Prelude was a song that was originally a full song. It had lyrics and everything else. And it started kind of subdued the way you're talking about. And then it grew heavier and kind of crescendoed. And um, when we laid the vocal melody, Goodwin, the producer, was like, man, there's something that just, like, it sounds a little bit too much like this other thing. So we elected to, like, okay, let's keep it. It's a beautiful song, but then maybe we can chop it up later. And I I liked it so much that I wanted to keep that song a part of the album. So we just took some of the guitar overdubs and some of those things and kind of made it into like a minute 30 long, uh, you know, kind of pre-war type of song. So it's it's intended to be the, the calm before the storm. And then war was really kind of meant to be, you know, the chaos and the fury and violence of battle and everything else. Uh, So it's just a hard, you know, punch in the face kind of tune. Uh, Silence and Light is a song that really is about contemplation and really how it has to do with, you know, veteran suicide and the guys that are living through dark times and things like that. And so it was meant to be something where even though you might be in a really dark spot right now, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, but really it was that journey of contemplation. So from prelude to war to silence and light is, is kind of that full circle thing of, you know, so much of us look at war 
it's made to look glorious. And really, war is like 20 seconds of something, but there's a whole lot of aftermath and there's a whole lot of pre, pre-war uh, that happens. So anyway, that's, that's kind of how all that stuff came to be. You guys have put together the album you've played. Share with me about some of the, some of the performances you're proudest of. Yeah, we got to our first show together was opening for Lenny Kravitz in uh, D.C. at the the Anthem. And it was a a private event, but it was one of those things where immediately we're in front of, you know, about 5,000 people. And uh, and it was just a great time. We've done a handful of stuff, you know, like that. We had some USO uh, dates lined up, and that's right about when COVID hit. And so we decided to take the opportunity rather than, you know, try and get out there and play one-off shows here and there. Let's just put our efforts into writing, you know, album two and all this stuff will be up on our social media and things like that. So the people can come out, but our intent is to get the album done. So we don't want to sidetrack and get too wrapped up into performances. Like let's get this album done. And then we've got something that we can get out and support, you know, Mm, so glad 22 and beyond is looking bright for live shows and for getting to go hear some live music. Uh, lastly, share with me one story I, I, I can't help but want to hear a little bit more about. But uh, the time that you gave Ozzy Osbourne a unit patch or you gave mm. Geezer Butler the unit patch, Black Sabbath, Ozzy Osbourne, Silence and Light, you guys all in the same room. <laughs> Okay, so um, I'm buddies with Jack Osborne, and that's that's kind of how the connection came to be. From the but, reality show, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Jack's, yeah. Jack's a buddy of mine. Anyway, um, a friend had given me some patches that were worn overseas on a deployment and basically said, you know, hey, I want to get these to Ozzy, if at all possible. And I let Jack know. And uh, me and this person and uh, Jack coordinated the whole thing, but ended up, you know, getting to hang with Ozzy and Sharon for an evening before they played in New York. And I'd been invited over to their place a couple of times before that and weirdly had to decline because of other stuff I had going on, which seems, yeah, right. Like, sorry, Ozzy, can't come over for supper. I got something to do. What? Yeah, yeah, I know, right? That that was uh that was one of those man, I can't believe I'm saying this, but sorry, Sharon, I can't come over and have steaks with you guys tonight because uh I got something else going on. But anyway, uh we got backstage and we were hanging with Ozzy and got to talk to him about just, you know, the importance of the music that, you know, he'd put together and the stuff that we carried forward, you know, and that feeling of uh I don't know, man, his music, Sabbath specifically, uh, especially for me and Jason, was just a huge part of our soundtrack, you know. Anyway, so gave him these patches and he handed them out to the rest of the band. And at the show, you know, 30 minutes later, 45 minutes later, there's Geezer on stage with the patch sewn to his shirt. So I posted these photos of like, you know, me and and Ozzy and Jason and Ozzy and then Geezer with the patch on his on his shirt and stuff like that. But it just one of those surreal moments of if you had told 15 year old Brad that he was going to give something to Ozzy, that then the band was going to wear on stage, it would be like, no way I'll get every now and again, I get some good uh, Ozzy info and uh, inside stories, which are just priceless. None of which I'll share, but all, all good stuff. Well, I mean, I love his continual dedication to the sound. And geez, even that uh, last last couple of songs he did with Post Malone, I thought was incredible because here he is still aware of the fact that there are new people rising up underneath him that have grown up inspired by him. He and is it, the lifeblood of hard rock. And it's so cool. He, to he doesn't need you, to do it. He, he doesn't yeah, need the yeah. paycheck, you know, and that's that's one of the things, you know, I, I took my wife. I saw 
on their last tour, I saw them probably five times, just different locations. And it just timed out just right. The, the energy that was in this place was absolutely phenomenal. And I remember she and I just looking at each other during the show and going, these guys are late sixties and they are putting together better music with more energy than 99% of the bands that are a quarter their age. I mean, absolutely blow them away. And to me, that's, it's all about chemistry. I feel the same thing when we play and we play together. Uh, even some of the unplugged stuff that Fred and I have done, we, we've gone and played for Marines and done some USOs type of stuff with different organizations. Um, it's a heavy thing, man. Like I feel you can feel it. And that's not something that I experienced in the eighties when I was playing music and it didn't have the depth. And I feel like that that's the one thing that the military did for me, aside from all of my experiences is it gave me this depth in music that you could feel it, you know, when you listen to it. So, yeah. And it's, it's so not contrived like pop music. And I feel sometimes, you know, music today is as much about a low cut t-shirt and a push up bra as it is the sounds coming out the speakers. And that's not what it was intended to be. That's why we take such, uh, it's why we get the chills when we hear certain songs, either modern or classic, but when they're doing it right, when it's coming from here and not just, you know, for the magazine cover shoot, you can feel it. You can taste it. You can touch it. Uh, it is palpable. Uh, very cool, man. I could go on and on with you riff all day about hard rock, about some of our favorite shows about, uh, you know, just, just what it's like to sit side stage and, and, and hear some guy out there gripping it and ripping it and shredding on stage. It is just a joy. I am so glad that it looks like on the horizon of 22, uh, there will be concerts. There will be outdoor get togethers. Again, we are going to rock out. And I look for more from Silence and Light, including um, this forthcoming album. Again, you can find Silence and Light, Google it. But I found you guys, you know, in Apple Music. You're all over the place. Spotify, I imagine you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on every, I don't know, uh, 67 different, you know, music related YouTube, Amazon, wherever, uh, Google Play, wherever you normally get your music. We're, we're on all those platforms. Well, I'm digging it, man. Brad Thomas, former Delta Force, former Army Ranger, now holding down as founding member of Silence and Light, along with your uh, combat vet brethren there. Uh, It's going to be such a great time to see you live this summer. I cannot wait. But uh, I thank you most sincerely because not only are you raising funds for, you know, some causes that are so important to the veteran community, but you're channeling an energy that I think the veteran community needs to hear both in lyric and in sound. And that's just to be commended real quick. Tell me a little bit about the charities and about where the proceeds of these albums go. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I didn't intend to be a public person and, you know, going into this, it, it wasn't necessarily my intent. I put myself out there as a way to say, look, I've lived those dark times. I've been in Mogadishu. I've deployed nine times in support of, uh, you know, good stuff for America and lost a lot of people along the way. And really it's to say, if I can find a way to give back to the community in a healthy, positive and creative way that it's going to, you know, it's given me a tremendous sense of purpose. And, uh, and that's something that anybody can do. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. No matter what your dark days are, I'll put my resume up against anybody's. Um, in terms of what we're supporting, there's Warrior's Heart, which is the main organization that we're contributing to right now. And that's a physical facility in Texas. It was stood up by a former Delta Force buddy of mine. Um, it's a place where people can go, not just veterans, but first responders. Uh, I think that extends even beyond that, but it's a place that gets people clean and then it gets them PTSD counseling, but also they use art as a form of therapy. And it's something that I speaks to me, whether it's writing, uh, painting, sculpting, songwriting, whatever it might be, they use that as a form of therapy. So we're taking a hundred percent of our music royalties. So when you stream a song, 
or you buy a song on Apple Music, if you buy a song, you're contributing much more than if you stream a song. But um, 100% of our music royalties are going to that organization. If you want to help support the band, buy merchandise. Um, by no way does that help us recoup the costs of recording albums and traveling and you know, paying for plane tickets and hotels and studio fees and all that stuff. But if, if people want to support the band, get on and buy merchandise. That's the best way that you can help us out. What's the website? Silence and light music.com. But if you check out, you know, our social media is where we're most active. So if you check out Instagram, it's got links to all that stuff, music, merch, everything, schedule, all that stuff. All right. You've been such a hell of a good conversation. Brad Thomas, again, Army veteran and uh, former Delta Force, now founding member of Silence and Light. I look forward to seeing you this year, this summer from the beer garden at a show, because I know you guys are (laughs) going to do huge things. And this story is just getting started. I only wonder who you will tour with next and uh, what stages I'll see you on. But in the meantime, Silence and Light, check it out. You rock, brother. Awesome, man. Thank you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.